0: Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. In her latest book, Australian biologist Danielle Claude explores the extraordinary world of koalas, their evolution biology, and behavior from their ancient ancestors until today. She describes their complex relationship with humans and the current threats to their survival. The book, Koala, A Natural History and an Uncertain Future, is published by W.W. Norton and brings Danielle Claude to our show now. Welcome.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Aren't you in Adelaide Hills, South Australia? What time is it there?
1: It's very early in the morning. It's 4.30.
0: Well, thank you so much for talking with us here in New York about this book.
1: No problems.
0: Uh, They're often called koala bears, but do they actually have any relationship to bears other than a slight resemblance?
1: Yeah, not at all. Um, Koalas are marsupials, so they have a pouch, um, just like kangaroos and and possums. Um, yeah, so th- so they're a very distinctive um, form of animal, very different from from uh, the ones that you're more familiar with in the northern hemisphere.
0: They have pouches, and we'll get into that and um, the role they play in um, in childbirth, but. Do marsupial brains differ from other mammal brains?
1: They do, actually. They the most distinctive difference is that they don't have the um, the big superhighway that runs between the two hemispheres. So it's called the corpus callosum that joins the left and the right hemisphere in our brain and most other mammals' brains. The marsupials don't have that, um, but they have connections elsewhere. So down in the brainstem, they have a have the the connections between the hemispheres.
0: Don't most marsupials live in Australia? Where they else? do.
1: They're, they're, they're a very southern hemisphere group of animals. So um, certainly Australia has the biggest radiation. It's got um, you know well over 200 species of um, marsupials. There's a lot of marsupials, though, in South America, and they're all opossums, mm. so different types of opossums, and, and they've got over 100 species of opossums there. And, of course, You've got Virginia opossums um, that are the one species that's um, naturalised in the north.
0: So there are even a few in the United States.
1: That's right. Yep, yep. Hmm. Just and one in
0: Indonesia two. also. The islands, some parts of Indonesia.
1: Uh yes, yes. Um, so, yeah, there's there's areas of uh, Australasia, I guess. So it's it's interconnected. Hmm. So they they are found through. Um, New Guinea um, has quite a few as well, so so that kind of area that was once all interconnected on a single landmass.
0: Do we know when the when mammals split?
1: Well, that's a good question. It's 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 very early on. So, you know, you have the, the the three groups: of the monotremes, the marsupials, and what we commonly call the placentals or eutherian mammals. So that so that was very early on. It's the the actual details of that are, are quite unclear, um, and there's still a lot of debate and research going on about when and where that happened.
0: Aren't koalas born the size of tiny jelly beans and then crawl into a pouch in their mother's bodies?
1: That's right, that's the common um, pattern for reproduction in marsupials. I I think it's a pretty good system actually. Hmm. Um, So they're they're born the size of a little little jelly bean, they do, they crawl up through the fur. Um, So they're very, they're called pinkies then because they're just tiny little hairless things. Um, And they're called joeys, aren't they? They are when they get older. Um, Pinkies are are a phase that they go through, Mm. um, you know. So when they're very, very small and that they crawl up through the fur and into the mother's pouch and attach them, themselves onto a, a nipple um, and they stay there and get bigger until they they kind of have what we call the second birth, you know, it's the, the when the, the baby appears out of the pouch and that's more closely related developmentally to when, um, you know, other mammals would actually give birth. So it's kind of like a, a bit of an external phase to their pregnancy.
0: Why are they called joeys later?
1: I uh, I don't know the answer to that. Hmm. I have actually looked into where the origin of the word joey comes from, but it's a little bit um it's a little bit obscure. I'm still working on that one.
0: But okay, so they're in pouches. Uh, we know that kangaroos are in the pouch as well, wombats as well. Are they related in any other way?
1: Well, they're all part of the same group of animals. So wombats are actually koala's closest living relative. but they're not particularly closely related. So they, wombats and koalas are part of a much bigger family that, in the um, last, that, that in the past has been much larger. So they were, in fact, it included examples of Australia's megafauna. So Australia didn't have animals like woolly mammoths or saber-toothed tigers. We had giant um, uh, marsupials instead. Mm. So one of those was a deprotodon, which was about the size of a, a four-wheel drive, two or three animal, um, a big grazing animal, um, and that was actually a relative of the koalas and the wombats, but now we've only got small ones left.
0: Well, they're weaned on a diet of gum tree leaves, uh, which is the koala's single source of food, but aren't gum tree leaves toxic?
1: They are. Most animals find or most mammals find that um, gum gum leaves eucalyptus leaves um, make them feel nauseous, so they don't tend to eat them very much. But koalas are very particularly adapted to feeding on eucalypt leaves, so they have a, a really complex supercharged liver that is particularly good at removing the toxins out of um, eucalypts. They still have to be careful which eucalypts they eat, so some a lot of eucalypts will still make them too ill and aren't suitable for them to eat. So there's about 900 species of eucalypts in Australia and koalas only eat about 70 of those. Um, And any one koala will only specialize in between say 4 and 10 species of eucalypts. So they're really quite particular Mm. in what they eat.
0: How long do the babies remain in their mother's pouch?
1: there for quite some time koalas have um a, f- a fairly long um developmental process because they their their diet isn't hugely nutritious so um they they take a little bit longer than than most um mammals but basically the time the joeys spend in the pouch before they do their first emergence of course joeys when they get older will come in and out of the pouch quite a lot so um really? the, from the time they first emerge it's about the same lengths of pregnancy as you'd see in it in a um in a uretherian mammal of the same size say a monkey or something like that
0: so what is that that's uh, six or seven months
1: yeah actually i'm off the top of my head i do have that it, i think it's I think it's a bit shorter than that. I think it's mm. about five months. I, I can't recall just at the minute. You caught me on the hop there.
0: Okay, well, <laughs> you described their extraordinary senses and note that they're one of the few animals known to have fingerprints, which may enhance their abilities to sense vibrations. Fingerprints?
1: Yeah, it's an interesting feature. Um, pri- typically primates are the only animals to have fingerprints, but fingerprints are a funny feature. We do have a few uh, other animals that possibly have something a little bit like fingerprints. It's not something that's well studied. Um, but koalas definitely have very distinctive fingerprints. And, you know, it's it's said that if you found a koala fingerprint at a crime scene, it, you'd just assume it was <laughs> a human fingerprint. So um, not that I think that's ever happened. but. Um, yeah, it's not really clear. People often think that it's um, to enhance grip, but there's a bit of debate about whether fingerprints actually do enhance grip, or actually whether they make it, um, make it, you know, make it worse. Um, so I, I suspect that fingerprints are just a bit of a a particular developmental thing that happens in the production of skin um, and it may be related to sensitivity so um, our, as we know our um, fingertips are extremely sensitive and we do know that the nerve cells and the fingerprints interact in some way um, to enhance that sensation, the vibrations on your skin. So it, it's, a, it's possible that the same is true for koalas um, who do also have very, uh, they, they use their hands to select their food um, and whether there's some reason that that's important to them, what they're sensing through their fingers.
0: They also have acute hearing. Um, that uh, helps males detect whether a rival is larger and should be avoided in a fight over territory. Do they fight much over territory?
1: Uh, well, they certainly fight over access to females for sure. They're not they're not massively territorial, but they they um they do fight during the mating season quite vigorously. So um, yeah, they they communicate long distance by bellowing. Um, and koalas have a very distinctive and loud call, which is unusual for a marsupial. So um, in the breeding season here, you can hear the koalas bellowing. It's like a, a, a deep wheezing grunt. Um, I, I often describe it as like a donkey, um, but you, you just have to drop your voice really low and slow it right down. Mm. Um, and that's what a koala bellow sounds like. So it's, it's not a terribly pleasant sound. Um, but yeah, they do. They do fight quite a lot. The males fight with each other, and they also fight with the females because the, the females are um, not as enthusiastic about the <laughs> the males' attentions all the time, and and they're very vocal in in deterring them. So there's lots of squealing and screaming and shrieking going on in the gum trees at mating season.
0: And they don't pair off. Uh, I mean, uh, it isn't like. Uh... Other animals where there there uh, the male and the female remain uh, a couple. The, this is Nine. whoever whoever's there.
1: <laughs> well, they're very, they are very particular. The females are, the, the males are not particularly particular about mm. which, which female they're interested in, but the females are quite fussy. So that, that's probably the cause of much of the dispute. But um, the males play no role in caring for the joeys at all. So um, as, soon as, as soon as they've done their job, they're off.
0: My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is Danielle Claude, and her latest book is Koala. A Natural History and an Uncertain Future, published by W.W. Norton. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. You've written over a dozen books, and you say koalas regularly appeared in your backyard, but it was only when a brush fire threatened that you paid them attention? Why that in particular?
1: Well, bushfires are a major part of the Australian environment. So we, we live in a very dry air, you know, continent um, and we have, you know, our dominant vegetation is fire adapted. So eucalypt forests burn very fiercely. So most Australians who live in, you know, outside of the cities have to be very um, aware of bushfires and prepared for them. And, and you know, we, we have a, a system of community fire defence, so people protect their own houses. Um, so... Um, we had a bushfire come towards us, which actually did quite a lot of damage and burnt out a very large reserve um, behind um, where I live, which is which is in a rural area, and um, yeah, we lost a lot of a lot of koalas as well as a couple of houses um, in in that fire. So I guess, you know, having that experience and and having a bushfire come towards you, um, which is a pretty terrifying experience um, and seeing all the animals pouring out of the, out of the bush in advance of the fire and then being aware of the the casualties afterwards um, really made me think about where, where the animals could go in our environment now where the forests are so fragmented. Um, and once those areas are burnt, there's no food left for the animals that did survive. Um, and it's very difficult for those areas to be repopulated with animals after fires and recover.
0: Had you been given a fluffy koala toy when you were a child?
1: Oh, yes, I think. Hmm. Fluffy koala toys are pretty universal, I reckon. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: (laughs) Mm-hmm. Yeah, everybody seems to have one.
0: Well, but of course, there's a special situation when you're Australian. Uh, Okay, so you saw this bushfire, and that led you to, to thinking about writing a book about koalas?
1: Well, I guess the thing, the bushfires in um, 2019 and 20, which, you know, the black summer fires that burnt up the east coast of Australia predominantly, um, also had a big impact on Kangaroo Island near where I live, which is home to a very, very large population of koalas and a great many of them died. there. They lost about 40,000 koalas in those fires, Mm. which was quite devastating. So... And and of course, there was also a lot of publicity, which you would have come across in the US, about the the koalas after those fires in the East Coast. And there's a lot of concern on the East Coast about them being endangered um, and the risk of them going extinct. And yet where I live, koalas are quite abundant. Um, In fact, they're so abundant, they are in danger of overbrowsing their trees. Um, So I was curious to know what was it that was causing that that disjunction between the two populations what was happening to them on the east coast that was different to what was happening where I live Um, and trying to tap into you know just trying to work out what was going on
0: aren't modern koalas the lone survivors of a uh, an ancient giant koala group there are. were
1: giant koalas, so hmm. yes, in the past there have been more species than we have now. We only have a single koala now, but um, in the past there have been other species of koalas as well. And one of those was a giant koala. Other koalas were smaller, so you, we do have you know smaller koalas and bigger ones in their in their ancestry. But there was a giant koala at the time of the megafauna, which was about three times the size of the current koala. Um, wow. Koalas currently. Yeah, they're, they're about eight eight kilos, or you know, on average. Um, but yeah, there, there was a much much bigger one that was probably up to about thirty kilos. So that that mm-hmm. would have been quite an impressive animal.
0: Well, in pounds, that uh, they weigh nine to thirty. Oh, sorry, pounds.
1: no and, kilograms. Uh, and so and, kilograms. Uh,
0: and they're about uh, two feet to a little under three feet long now. So when they were giants, they were what the size of
1: elephants. No, no, they're probably. Oh, I'm trying to think. Probably a small bear, I'd say. Mm-hmm. Um, so not not one of the big bears, but but a small a smaller bear, <laughs> if, if that helps. Um, yeah. So I guess I guess we'd probably think that a a, a koala today, when you see them on the ground, they're sort of a um a, me- a medium-sized dog size. Um, mm-hmm. whereas whereas um. That those giant koalas would be quite a large dog but of course they're a lot stockier uh, they're quite they're quite you know they're not long-legged they're, they're quite stocky in their build
0: they were hunted by indigenous australians and also uh in, in their myths and 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 uh, depicted in in cave art this is before hmm. the europe this is before the europeans came
1: Yes, well, I mean, Indigenous Australians have been um, in Australia for a very long time, certainly more than 60,000 years. So they have a very long history of living um, with Australian wildlife and they have very... um, complex and detailed laws and and stories around wildlife and environment and koalas feature quite prominently in those stories. Um, And it's really quite interesting because a lot of those stories are really old and date from a time when Australia was undergoing significant sea level rises. Um, And the koalas often feature in those stories as ancestral spirit animals that Assist people to find new country and new land when their land has been, um, you know, covered by the sea. So they're they're often in stories that um, are about, you know, saving people and bringing them to a new country, and the and the koalas assist in that process. But I think the important thing about um, Indigenous dreaming stories is that they are often um, around understanding environmental change and recognizing when there's an imbalance in the environment and paying attention to the landscape and the environment. So so there's an, there are other stories where um, when Indigenous people are traveling through the bush and they see a koala in the tree, they'll stop and talk to the koalas and, and listen to the koala and see what advice it has for them. And I think that's a really interesting kind of... Um, way of approaching things it's 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 really i think what that's saying is is saying that we need to when things when we're not sure where we're going we need to stop what we're doing and think about what we're doing and look at the country and look at the environment and see what we're doing wrong or or what we could be doing better and i think that's really good advice for us just at the moment going through the current period of um environmental upheaval.
0: they could do that because koalas don't threaten humans
1: no, koalas aren't dangerous to humans. Um, I mean, you certainly don't want to go and poke a koala. Um, they, they are quite um, well armed. They've got um, very long, very sharp claws that they use to climb up the hardwood tree. So it, it's a, they do have to They're really sharp claws because gum trees are extremely hard timber. Um, and, you know, you've got to get a good grip going up one of those. So um, they, they can inflict some damage with their claws and they do bite, but they're fairly um, amiable temperaments generally. So if you don't bother them, they're certainly not going to bother you.
0: Are they thought of as competitors for land by some farmers?
1: Not very many. Ko- koalas, you know, not not many things use eucalypt trees, um, but of course there is a conflict when it comes to forestry. Um, so... In, in native forest, koalas are fairly widely dispersed and don't usually cause much of a problem. Um, But in plantations, when they would say, sometimes we'll move into um, eucalypt plantations. And that means that the forests then have to um, make arrangements to remove the koalas from the trees before they can cut them down, which is a minor inconvenience, but um, not a major problem. Um, But there have been some cases where um, private landholders have not done that. And that's caused quite an outrage.
0: So they overpopulate some forests in, in parts of Australia. On the other hand, they're threatened with extinction in some areas due to disease, climate change, and increasing wildfires.
1: Yes, that's true. Um, I think this is a complex um, issue and we're not quite sure exactly what's going on, but I suspect it's got to do with the fragmentation of their habitat. So in the past, when Australia, the east and south areas of Australia were covered in a continuous forest, um, koalas would have been able to move very freely through that forest. Um, in response to different environmental changes or, um, you know, to repopulate areas that had disease, they would have been able to spread out. I think when they're at the moment, because we've cleared so much of the forest, essentially the forest is all in isolated pockets. Um, So the koalas are really living in forest islands, which makes it difficult for them to move. It makes it easy, as we've discovered during the pandemic, it makes it easy for... um, diseases to spread within their populations because they're sort of stuck in these smaller pockets Um, and it also but if in in a population where they don't have disease it also makes it easier for them to overbreed and they've got nowhere to go they've got nowhere to disperse so i suspect that that's a a factor caused by the, the damage we've done to their habitat
0: and you note that because koalas don't molt they struggle to make it through the hot summers
1: yeah, well, nobody likes it when it's really hot, huh. <laughs> and Australian summers can be really brutally hot. So um, they do they do have a range of uh, habits that, that you know they they often you'll see them they when they're sleeping they sprawl out on the trees they 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 lie out on the tree branches um, and they use the trees as a cool because the trees stay a little bit cooler than the surrounding air so they they often lie against the cool of the trees and they will sometimes. Sometimes come down and lie on the, at the base of the tree, or, you know, where it's a bit cooler down there, or or retreat into cool gullies. Um, and at times they'll come into people's gardens and look for cool, shady spots. Um, some of our, you know, introduced trees are a bit more shady, but uh, then the eucalypts, eucalypts have a very light canopy that um, lets the light through. But um, so so you'll find them in shade trees. They'll seek out shade trees, which are not trees they eat. But they they trees that provide a little bit more cool cool shade
0: because their diet has limited nutritional and caloric content. Aren't koalas largely sedentary and sleep up to 20 hours a day?
1: Yeah, that's a very common belief that um, the reason that they they sleep most of the time, and it's true, they do sleep most of the time, um, but the people say that the reason they do that is because their diet is so poor, but it's not actually true because their diet is much the same as the equivalent diet for a sheep or a goat or, or some other animal, a herbivore what of is, the same size. Grimes what about kangaroos? yeah or they- kangaroos that's right and and they're much more active so they're they much more they don't sleep anywhere near as long i think the reason koalas sleep as long as they do is simply because they can they live up in trees their predators are not a threat to them up there um, in fact their best predator response in a tree is to sit quietly and not move because they're quite hard to see when they do that um, whereas animals that are on the ground have to be constantly alert for predators and keeping an eye out for them. So that's why they stay active. So I think, you know, we, we you know, cats and dogs also sleep a great deal of the time and they have a very highly nutritious um, diet. So I think if, if koala diet was so poor in nutrition, they would have to eat all the time and they'd be awake to do that.
0: How much of a threat is climate change to their existence?
1: Well, c- climate change certainly has significant impacts um, in a, in Australia as it does everywhere else. Um, it's certainly, you know, going to change things like aridity. So, so we'll have areas that will get a lot drier and lose rainfall, um, particularly along the east coast. Um, it also seems to be increasing bushfires in their frequency and their severity, which means that the forests may not be able to recover um, as quickly as they or as successfully as they did before. So that could have long-term impacts. More frequent fire tends to um, open up forest and, and and make it disappear over time if the trees can't recover. Um, or, or regenerate. So you, you end up with more grassland, then, which is not good for koalas. Um, and there's also some unexpected changes that we don't really know how they're going to pan out because changing CO2 levels. Um, can also have an impact on the toxicity of the trees. So there's some concern that the trees will become more toxic. And and koalas are operating on a very fine balancing act with toxicity and nutrition in the gum leaves. So anything that tips it into a harder basket for them could have a significant impact on their survival.
0: Well, climate change is a concern for everyone, but is there an ideal climate for koalas or uh, is it just the the way Australia has been over the centuries.
1: Yeah, well like most animals, um, koalas I mean, They, they are, have a lot of fur. <laughs> yeah yeah they're just extremely adapted you know they're really well adapted for the climate they are in now so yeah. and that's the same as us we're perfectly adapted for the climate we have and and you know so so what we have is the best one for us um but some animals are more adaptable than others and koalas are actually quite adaptable um they have they have proven that over a long evolutionary history they've survived previous um, extinction events both both ones caused by climate change um, and then also ones caused by humans. So um, they are quite an adaptable species, but evolution is, you know, it's the luck of the draw. So it's very easy for us to lose species. Um, and we've, we can see that through our, our fossil record. Um, and you know, that, that we, so if we want to protect these species, we've got to be very careful to try and maintain things with as much stability as we can manage.
0: You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I am a koala. I sit up in my tree. Look down upon the ground. And my homeland used to be Where once were trees and bushland i just see urban sprawl And it makes me wonder What's the future of it all? People say we're cuddly I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Danielle Claude. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of her book Koala A Natural History and an Uncertain Future. Uh, to do that just go online to give2wbai.org to or call 212-209-2950 during today's show and we'll be happy to send you a copy. That's give and the number 2wbai.org or 212-209-2950 but don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of London Lopate at Large, and we thank you very much. And return to Danielle Claude. Her book, Koala, A Natural History in an Uncertain Future, is published by W.W. W. Norton. She is a biologist and natural history author based at Flinders College. Uh, I, Flinders University, I'm sorry. I hadn't heard of Flinders. Is it a major university in Australia?
1: Uh, yes, it's it's one of um, three universities in Adelaide, so it's it's one of the, the main universities in the city.
0: Okay. Um, koalas are generally asocial animals and bonding exists only between mothers and their dependent offspring, but you look into the complex relationship and unexpected connections between koalas and humans. Do do we know why some koalas appear to be drawn to humans?
1: Yeah, um, koalas are interesting. I think because they're not um, because they're not um, sort of exposed to, to. I mean, they do have predators, but um, they're not particularly bothered by predators. They don't have a flight response. More to the point, so they don't run away from predators. So you know, when you approach, you know wild deer or something like that they'll run away Um, koalas will also move away but they're more inclined to go up a tree and then just watch what you're doing from the tree so so they're quite curious animals they they do like to see what you're up to and keep an eye on you when you're when you're when you're watching them they'll be watching you just with just as much interest Um, and on occasions where they do come into close contact with with humans they don't Display a lot of distress; they may not be happy with the situation, but they 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 seem pretty calm most of the time. So, um, and unfortunately, that does sometimes lead people to approach them too closely, um, and it it is best to leave leave them be. But they do come into people's gardens; they do, you know, sometimes try and climb through a window or or they'll come in through a door if it happens to be in their path. Um, And so people do have interactions with them like that. Um, Has that happened
0: with you throughout your life?
1: Um, no, no, not in particular I, I do see them out in the bush I haven't actually had one come up to my house but um, I, I don't live in the middle of the forest but I certainly have lots of friends who've had that encounter um, with koalas um, my mother had them she, they used to walk past her lounge room window and have a bit of a look and see what she was up to inside as they went past so mm-hmm. so yes it's it's certainly not, not uncommon um, I guess the thing with koalas they're not it's interesting when, you know, they do have a bond with their joeys, but they do occasionally, they're quite sociable with each other as well. It's, it's not that they're unsociable like with some animals when you have them in captivity and you put them in an enclosure together they will fight and you have to separate them for their own safety but um, koalas are quite comfortable being in the same enclosure provided it's not the breeding season Um, and they often hang out together Um, I think that's their unsociability comes from their food supply so they have to spread out in the forest in order to have enough food to eat Um, and they can't afford to be in areas of forest with too many other koalas most of the time Um, so that's what spreads them out Um, and of course in a zoo where they have free food provided to them that's less of a problem and so they're more sociable
0: now were they there were conservation efforts in the 1920s were they threatened then
1: Yes, they were under serious threat then. So what was happening in the late 1800s and early 1900s was that there was a massive international fur trade and um, koala fur was being shipped out of Australia to America and to the UK um, in quite large numbers, along with wombats and possums and other things. To be made into
0: fur coats?
1: Yeah, I'm I'm not exactly sure what they used that fur for, but yeah, for hats and gloves and coats Koala fur is apparent is very thick and um, quite waterproof, so it was quite prized for that reason. Um, so yes, it, it was being made into into clothing, also rugs I think as well. Um, and there were millions of pelts of koalas being shipped out. the The numbers that we see reported in the fur trade are, are quite surprising you wouldn't have thought there were that many koalas in Australia. But um, it did cause them to go extinct in South Australia, where I live, and also um, almost extinct in Victoria. So the, the southern population of koalas was pretty much wiped out by hunting. Um, and. It really there were efforts to stop stop hunting, and koalas were protected, but there were always exemptions and you know hunting seasons opened and things like that. Um, and it really wasn't until Herbert Hoover, the American president, was was contacted um, and he actually banned the importation of koala fur into America, and that dried up the fur trade um, wow. and, and finally stopped the stop the trade.
0: Well, actually, the interest goes all the way back into the 18th century with people like the naturalist George Perry, and uh, and then uh, into the 19th century with Robert Brown, the botanist. What roles did they play in making Europeans aware of koalas?
1: Yeah, it's interesting, koalas didn't attract a great deal of attention in the early days. Um,
0: more it, more likely the kangaroos?
1: yeah yeah i mean europeans were very fascinated by kangaroos and by platypus and other australian species but they weren't particularly interested in koalas which seems strange to us now given that koalas are are so popular and so fascinating but um they regard you know they used to describe them as like sloths or like monkeys um they or didn't bears. really have much, yeah, or bears. <laughs> they didn't really have much interest in them and they weren't well studied until relatively late. Um, it, I think part of that was that it was hard to get them. You you could you couldn't ship them overseas very easily. I mean, people tried, and the the animals would die. So because they simply couldn't take enough food with them. Um, so the only animals that made it overseas were probably young koalas that were still being bottle fed, um, and they were they were just surviving on that kind of um, not not very appropriate diet. But in the end, they, they don't last very long without their food. So it's been difficult to get. Um, koalas overseas and that's that's, that's remains true with um, zoos today so it wasn't really until san diego zoo established a colony that um koalas were able to be kept o- um, overseas successfully and and that's largely because san diego had a really good um, um a lot of eucalypts because they had mm-hmm. already said you know they'd already been taken to um san diego and used as street trees and windbreaks.
0: Where does the name koala come from?
1: It's actually a Dharug word, so an indigenous um, uh, indigenous language word, and it means "does not drink." So um, the, <laughs> they don't a drink. Whole heap of course. They don't drink very much, so they—they're they're, they're not off. They're, <laughs> I guess the argument is that they, they do get most of their water from the leaves in their tree, but they do drink, um, and we, we know that you know they, we've got pl- we see plenty of photos of them coming down and drinking water um, out of gardens and and bird baths and things. And of course, there's the classic f- photos of um, koalas being offered water during bushfires. Um, they certainly accept water if you offer it to them.
0: An interesting uh, thing that I read in your book is that koalas are dying from chlamydia. Isn't chlamydia a human disease?
1: Yeah, chlamydia is actually quite widespread in a lot of species, and it's also um, carried by sheep um, and some of the agricultural animals, and uh, that can be transmitted to, to across species. So uh, it's, it's not quite does it affect weathered. Does it affect
0: the other animals the same way it affects humans?
1: I... I... I'm not really sure about um, how it affects sheep or whether they just get treat, treatment for it. The issue with koalas is that um, because they've got that supercharged liver uh, it's really hard to treat them for disease so while you know a three day dose of medication would fix chlamydia in most other animals or and in humans, um, it takes a thirty day dose of uh, medication to um, treat a koala for chlamydia so um, it's it's really difficult to to help them with that. And, and that's caused, um, you know, complications for tr- for treating sick animals. So they, they do suffer badly from chlamydia. It's not really clear whether chlamydia in, stra- in koalas came from European settlement, from the sheep that were brought here, or whether they had it beforehand. Um, it could be both. There's lots of different types of chlamydia, um, so that affect different animals in different ways. But it, it's also made worse in koalas because they suffer from a retrovirus that causes a type of koala AIDS. And, of course, that has, also has the tendency to make other diseases worse. So koalas that have both of those diseases suffer much, much more severe, um, devastating symptoms from chlamydia. And it, and it is a very nasty, unpleasant disease.
0: Hmm. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is Danielle Claude. Whose latest book is *Koala: A Natural History in an Uncertain Future*, published by WW Norton and Company? This is your thirteenth book.
1: Yes, yes, I've been writing books for quite a long time now. Um, yeah, always, always natural history and environmental types of books for sure.
0: Well, I, I hope it's you know thirteen doesn't necessarily mean it's an unlucky one. In this case uh, I'm very I feel lucky to have been able to have read it and had you on my radio show. Um, I'm not so sure about how lucky the, the future is for koalas because didn't the International Union for Conservation of Nature list koalas as a vulnerable species last
1: year? Yeah, I think the issue with koalas is that certain parts of their population range are declining quite dramatically. So, on the East Coast, the the concern is how fast the population seems to be declining in particular Mm -hmm. areas. Um, So, it's not that the species as a whole is at risk of imminent extinction. We certainly have a lot of other species that are far more at risk of extinction than koalas. But the sudden decline um, is a worry, and also the fact that koalas Koalas are actually quite a resilient and widespread species, so if koalas are having trouble, it suggests that um, a lot of other things are in big trouble as well. Uh, so I think you know I, I tend to see koalas as the you know the the canary in the forest. They're they're a warning species that tells us we should be paying a lot more attention to what we're doing in in terms of managing habitat and protecting the environment, um, and um, you know, other species will will benefit from that if we if we protect the koalas.
0: Well, their population uh, declined by twenty nine percent over uh, the previous eighteen to twenty four years, and that's what led the Union for Conservation of Nature to list them as a vulnerable speech, uh, species. Um, well, have they been? Ca- haven't they been categorized as functionally extinct in the wild?
1: No, no, they're not, they're not functionally. functionally extinct. Is a is a funny term that sometimes gets a little bit um, misused. I think you know, functionally extinct is where you know you have one one male rhinoceros left, and there's uh-huh. there's no other. And that, that's you know, it, it's not extinct because there's still one individual left, but it's not going to be able to breed. Um, so it, it's functionally extinct. Koalas are very far from being functionally extinct, but they are certainly in peril and in certain areas. So certainly in the southern forest, they're doing really well and they're quite abundant. But... Um I think we need to be careful even abundant species can go extinct surprisingly quickly if you're not paying attention so you know just because there's lots of them around doesn't mean that there's there's not something to worry about and i think we do need to look at how forests in particular are being managed Um, and australia is actually despite the fact that we're meant to have laws protecting native vegetation from further clearance because you know like most places we've lost most of our native forest, um, it's still being cleared. So there are still a lot of exemptions. So exemptions for agriculture and forestry and mining. Um, And so uh, New New South Wales and Queensland are are world leaders in land clearance, which is quite shocking for a country like Australia to still be clearing land for those purposes.
0: I've always wondered whether um, if animals like koalas were reintroduced, taken from zoos and reintroduced into the natural habitat, whether they would just return to normal.
1: Yeah, um, I think the koalas can adapt to, you know, can, can certainly return to the wild. Um, and, and, you know, we do have koalas that are kept in captivity and then re-released back into the wild quite successfully. Um, I th- I think We've got to be a little bit careful where we release them. Um, they're very, very sensitive to the types of trees in their environment. So if they're not released back into an area that has the same type of trees that they are accustomed to eating, then they won't have the right um, digestive system. They don't have the right microbes to be able to digest the leaves and ultimately they will not do very well. So um, we do have to be careful about that. It's not It's not a simple matter of taking the overpopulated Koalas from the south and moving them into the north to, to replace the ones there. Um,
0: because they're but different, but aren't they? Different in the different parts of even Australia.
1: They're they're the same species, so they're not not a different species, but they do vary um, in in appearance so um the mm. ones in the south tend to be larger have thicker fur um and the ones in the north different are smaller colors too thin, thin fur yeah slightly different colors um you know the the grays and browns vary a little bit but not not massively um but yeah so so you wouldn't want to be putting a, a big thick coated um koala up, up north they'd, they'd find that a little bit hard going but um, they, they are still all the same species, and they interbreed quite successfully, so that um, they're not different species.
0: do we know how many koalas are estimated to be alive at right now?
1: Yeah. No no, we don't i mean it's it's actually really difficult to count koala number In fact, it's difficult to count any animal number they're always just very broad estimates but um, and, it, and it is a highly disputed um, disputed issue because there's a lot of koalas in the southern forests and not very many in the northern ones and Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of attention on the northern koalas because of their um, because they're in peril Uh, and and it's it's difficult I mean I guess guess there's more there's simply more work done on the northern ones than on the south so um, We don't know exactly how many, but there's certainly hundreds of thousands of koalas in Australia.
0: I assume that when you mention the word marsupial in Australia, everybody knows what it means. Um, I have uh, discovered that people in New York aren't always sure what distinguishes a marsupial from other kinds of mammals. Yes. (laughs)
1: Yes, <laughs> I mean that's understandable that they're they're not um, they're not commonly seen um, there. So so yeah, I mean, but it, it's really the simplest distinction is the pouch. They are distinguished by their reproductive tract. So you know, it's it's an internal feature, I suppose, and and many other features, but um, that 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 are different. But the most obvious external characteristic is is their pouch and the way they raise their young in a pouch. So so that's that's definitely the pouch bearers are the way of distinguishing them what do you hope
0: that people who read your book will come away with Um, is it just learning about uh, a a species that we that many people are don't know much about or uh, do you hope that something else will come out of it
1: hope I mean I think what's been interesting for me in thinking about koalas is thinking about our relationship with um, wild animals um, and how we relate to them and why we relate to them you know we, we often think about koalas as just being cute fairy animals but thinking about what it is about us as primates that makes us mm. think koalas are cute fairy animals in particular you know koalas have a face that appeals to us a full you know the forward-facing eyes we've got they've got they've got a very appealing face that we're neurologically programmed to respond to, um, and they, you know, they have a lot of other characteristics. They they elicit a lot of maternal responses. They 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 feel like a small child in a lot of ways. The way they cling onto things, the, the client tree climbing, and is, is very similar to holding on to, you know, the way you pick up a child. It is the same way you pick up a koala, um, and their need to hang on to something. Um, makes them very appealing. So there's a whole heap of traits that say as much about the koala as they say about us. Um, and I think koalas are a really interesting case study in how we relate to wild animals and what we need to be doing to look after them better in their in their wild state.
0: Are kangaroos also threatened?
1: No, kangaroos are very abundant in Australia. In fact, we have more of a problem with having too many kangaroos. So with the increasing aridity of Australia um, and also the increasing um, creation of grassland through farming, koalas, um, kangaroos have done extremely well because they're they're grazing animals. And also we've put in a lot of water supply for them. So kangaroo populations typically are... um, Dictated by the availability of freestanding water, because we've provided lots of dams and water sources, kangaroos have, have boomed in their population. That said, there's a lot of different species of kangaroos, and some kangaroos are um, threatened um, in small, you know, small populations. But the the big, widespread ones are, are very common indeed.
0: We only have a couple of minutes left. Are there things you uh, that you want to talk about that we haven't addressed yet?
1: I think think, um, just to go back to your question about what I hope people will get out of the book, I guess the thing I'd like people to think about is how they can live with wildlife and make their habitat more um, conducive to wildlife. So, you know, in Australia, it's not difficult to make habitat that is more appropriate for koalas. You know, we need to be looking at our... um, the rivers and the creek lines and making sure that we maintain the tree cover along those um, creek lines, because those are the trees that are really important to koalas. And a lot of Australian cities do still have um, eucalypts along those tree lines. So we need to protect them and make sure they remain. And they provide a sort of a corridor, a a highway for koalas to move through, which means that in Adelaide, where we do have some of those um, those corridors the koalas are actually moving into the city and they're quite happily living in the suburbs um, alongside humans so so we don't necessarily have to just lock up wilderness we do need to protect the wild areas we still have but we also need to be looking at ways of making our cities more wildlife friendly and and that will actually make them a lot better for us as well
0: What about if we bring koalas to some of our forests? Is the problem that uh, they would not find the foods they need?
1: Yeah, koalas need a really big Australian forest. So they need um, a forest the size of a football oval or a, a sports field um, to support one koala. So they really need, really need a very big and a very particular forest. It has to be a eucalypt forest, and it has to be the right sort of eucalypt. So so they are very very fussy. Um, they can be kept in zoos, but they take an. They're one of the most expensive animals to keep overseas. So the best place for a koala is in an Australian forest.
0: I want to thank you so much for being on our show. I've been speaking with Danielle Claude, whose latest book is Koala, A Natural History and an Uncertain Future, published by W.W. Norton. She is a biologist and natural history author based at Flinders University in Australia. It's been such a pleasure.
1: Thank you for having me. It's been great talking to you, too.
0: And uh, that brings us to the end of our show. My great thanks to our executive producer, Kaziah Glow, and our audio engineer, Reggie Johnson, for all the important work that they do throughout the week. Uh, I'm sad to announce that one of the greats of WBAI's past, Bill Farrar, has just passed away. He was a wonderful person and will be greatly missed. If You're discovering this program and would like to hear more about one-hour deep-dive interviews. You can access our our nearly 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed one million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We've gone through a number of serious economic crises recently because we are so just supported by our listeners. We don't uh, take any uh, money from any other places, foundations, or we don't run ads uh, or any of the other things that you, uh, that most of the public broadcasters do. Um, so we're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212 209-2950 going online to give2wbai.org to right now we need to help keep this unique in-depth content information you usually don't hear anywhere else and as I mentioned earlier you can uh, receive a copy of the book we've been discussing Koala: A Natural History and an Uncertain Future by Daniel Cole. If you become a member for $50 a year or more in the name of Planet Locate at Large. Got to do it right now. So give us a call right now 212-209-2950 or go online to Give to WBAI.org. That's given the number to WBAI.org. You might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy, and we'll say thank you with a BAI tote bag to anyone who becomes a member for $10 a month or more, 15 20 25 whatever. Uh, remember that BAI is the only station on the New York Radio dollar. It's 100% listener sponsored. Please. Help keep us alive and thriving with your tax-deductible support. We'll see you again next week. Have a great weekend.